so if if somebody is on the fence about this and they're evaluating HackerOne, don't be on the fence. Just get over it. <laughs> <laughs> just just dive over the fence. Yes. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's great to have you here. I hope you're all staying safe and you're all staying well. Uh, A quick note, of course, my book, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams, is out there. Be sure to go and check it out. But more importantly, I'm really delighted to bring on to the podcast Martin Mikos. How are you doing, Martin? I'm good, Jono. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, of course. I'm thrilled to have you here. So let me go through the rap sheet of, of, of your experience in your career. I think a lot of people will know you from uh, being the CEO of MySQL, uh, which you, you, you joined in 2001 uh, through to 2008, where MySQL was acquired by Sun for a billion dollars. You went on in 2009 to be the entrepreneur in residence at Benchmark Capital and Index Ventures. And in 2010, you were appointed CEO of Eucalyptus Systems, who built uh, software for the cloud. Um, throughout this time, you were uh, you're on the, the board of directors for Nokia, as well as RightScale, Mozilla Messaging, and the Node.js Foundation. And then Eucalyptus was acquired by Hewlett-Packard in 2014. And I think a lot of people at that point were looking on at your career and thinking, he's probably going to go and sit on a beach somewhere. But no, not Martin Mikos, uh, because you were appointed a CEO of HackerOne in 2015. So uh, do you get bored easily? <laughs> Mind. Do you need to keep busy all the time? Yes, I do. Well, no, I, it's not that I get bored. It is that I am boring. <laughs> I don't know about that. That seems that I, seems mighty. I, I wouldn't know what to do on a beach. <laughs> well, beaches, I think, sound like a great idea in theory, and then you're there for about four or five days, and it does get boring pretty quickly. Well, four um, or five minutes for me, and then I'm, I'm wondering. <laughs> so, and then I like to go to something boring, like sitting at my sitting at my laptop, typing things, communicating with people all over the right. planet and that gives me energy and good vibes and i don't know why but i really right. enjoy it well i would say that the energy and the good vibes is i think one of the reasons why people who know you um respect not just what you do but the approach that you've taken and this makes it difficult for this podcast because we could go in a million different directions but i, I want to start out with with the security angle because um there'll be people listening to this who are not familiar with hacker one i think it's a really interesting story but then i'd also like to get into a little bit later on about your approach to to business and to leadership as well so starting out with hacker one why don't you just provide a quick overview of what hacker one does because it's a it's a very different approach to security compared to a lot of businesses who will build a security team how does that work yes we hack you <laughs> we hack you for your benefit and we don't even do it ourselves we ask white hat hackers out there in the world freelancers and independent actors to try to break into your systems and when they right. do they won't send they won't tell you what the ransom is they'll tell you what the vulnerability is right. meaning they'll tell you what's wrong and f- suddenly you realize you had a hole in your software that no testing, no tool, no scanner was able to find. But right. these creative white hat hackers out there, they figured it out, they told you, you fix it and you are more secure. Right. And it's it's interesting because we've, we've obviously had this march towards um, 
the crowd being enabled. We've seen this with open source. We've obviously seen it with examples such as Uber and Lyft um, and people doing data science together. But security is very different. I think a lot of people historically have looked at security as a very personal topic, and you don't want to bring in too many people from the outside. How have you broached that as you've grown the business? Because I can imagine that from your perspective, in much the same way that open source was a bizarre concept back in the early days, uh, like, for example, when you were at MySQL, the notion of the crowd being able to make you more secure is kind of an unusual topic to a lot of businesses. How have you approached that? Well, you have to believe, you have to be ready to believe in something nobody else seems to believe in. Right. And, and when HackerOne was started, there weren't many who would even find it conceivable that an, a stranger would understand your computer system better than mm. yourself. But mm. they do. And, and now we have evidence. We have concrete, full evidence that it's working. So now it's a question of showing the evidence to people and getting them over that hump. But, but it is, of course, a, it's a huge emotional step for a business executive to say two things. First, yes, we have vulnerabilities. And then second, yes, we want strangers to tell us what they are. Right, right. And when you've broached those conversations with those businesses, have you have you seen different trends? For example, is a startups more amenable to the notion of 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 HackerOne than let's say larger scale enterprises? And does it differ radically by sector? Because for example, you've had you've worked quite a bit with the US government in the past. How has that differed between different industries and, and sectors? It's different, but it's not different by size. Uh, conservatism exists both in small and large organizations and progressive thinking as well. So uh, in 2016, the Department of Defense came to us, handpicked us and said, uh, Uncle Sam needs you to run a bug bounty program for us. And we ran Hack the Pentagon back then, the first version of it, and we've done it ever since. So there you see the DOD, the world's largest organization, maybe the world's uh, most conservative and bureaucratic and not known for being that agile, they right. decided they must, the only way to be secure is to call for the help from hackers on the outside. So, yeah. so it's it's not the size of the organization, but it is certainly their their mindset. Do they have a mindset of, of running to the fire or away from the fire? Right. And that's interesting because you'd imagine that the DOD would be the most conservative of mindsets. How did that happen? How did that manifest? Uh, there were many discussions leading up to it. <laughs> there was, uh, they, had, they have these units, the US Digital Service, the Defense Digital Service, which are progressive groups within uh, the broader DOD framework. And uh, then there was a Secretary of Defense who just made the decision and right. who stood up at a press conference and said, we will invite hackers to hack the Pentagon. Even mm. the name of it, Hack the Pentagon, was unheard of. And internally, right. there was a lot of, of obstruction and, and, and disagreement on it. But, but that's the great thing with something like DOD. They have command and control. And if the big boss, right. the Secretary of Defense, makes a they decision, say yes. yeah. they say yes. They then disagree and commit. Yep. And now they all agree and commit, but they initially probably disagreed and committed. Did you get the sense when that was happening that there were uh, there were a series of internal detractors within the DoD who were? Because you imagine, you, I'd imagine that there were some people who were just waiting for this to fail, and then of course it happened and it was successful. Um, but was there a certain a continued element of? 
kind of education and providing comfort that this was going to be something that was going to work? Well, actually, not for us. They handled it themselves beautifully. So right. we just believed that there must have been resistance, but we didn't concretely see it. We 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 got to focus just on delivering an amazing uh, product to them, which we did. And right. and we have now delivered over twelve thousand vulnerabilities to them that they've then fixed in the Air Force, Navy, uh, Marines, the Army, right. the defense travel systems, and so on. So so it has succeeded well beyond any expectations that they had back then. Do you think, I mean, that's interesting because uh, on one angle that you could look at that from the perspective of they're seeing the specific model that HackerOne is presenting here as something that's offering value. And then another thread to that bow is just the notion of tapping into um, a crowd and tapping into a community to open up your, the, the potential, you know, more, Back, back to the old open source days, you know, the more eyeballs and code, the, uh, the the better it's going to be effectively. So do you think that the government's becoming more amenable to this notion of a crowd providing innovation outside of security? Well, let's first uh, make a clear note that there's crowdsourcing and crowdsourcing. In in some right. of the services, it's not highly differentiated. It, okay. it, you don't mind that much who is your driver in a, in a ride share. It could be right. anybody as long as yeah. they, are, they, they are reasonably good at it. When it comes to hacking, it's highly specialized. And the, the power of this community is that it it identifies automatically the ones who are best fitted at testing your system, but it's not yeah. like everybody could be doing it. So at the end of the day, it's very few hackers who actually deliver vulnerabilities to your own program because it's so differentiated, but it still works. It's still yes. uh, the, yeah. the law of large numbers and, and the results coming out of it. So so, so that's how it works. And, and certainly the government has, has understood it. This has been a recommended practice in the cybersecurity framework that NIST has promulgated mm. for a long time, which is the most respected cybersecurity framework in the world. Right. Uh, they, they're just upgrading documents there and, and putting even more mention of hacker-powered security there. Uh, yeah. Also, Department of Homeland Security uh, which is in charge of cybersecurity for the whole federal government, uh, they are working on a binding operational directive that will mandate uh, this practice for every federal civilian agency. Oh, interesting. Wow. Wow. So, it sounds, so, so this, is, this is not just, being a, this is not just a, a short-term solution. This is becoming part of the culture of how security is happening. It's the only way to do security. And this right. is the big shift we must see in cybersecurity. That the only way to do it is together. The only way to do it is in collaboration and in openness and sharing mm. the knowledge. And if you don't listen to external experts, we call them hackers, but it can be any sort of experts. If yeah. you don't listen to external experts, you will be doomed. You, you, it's negligence if you, if you refuse to take the input that's coming from the outside. Because remember, the threat comes from the outside. So right. the best way to observe what's vulnerable is from the outside, not from the inside. Right. And so if, if somebody is on the fence about this and they're evaluating HackerOne, don't and be on the fence. Just get over it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just dive over the fence. Yes. So if they're, but if they're on the fence and they're thinking, okay, I've got two broad options here. I can staff a security team or I can hire a specific set of security contractors to do this or I can go the hacker one approach to things. 
Um, obviously, one element of value on the HackerOne side is the is you have a much broader depth of people who can who can who can do the hacking and and potentially identify vulnerabilities. But what are the other reasons why someone should take the HackerOne approach in your argument? Well, let's be clear. You will need an internal security function anyhow, no matter right. what you do. Everybody right. will need it, and and it's that's what companies are not small companies are not necessarily ready for. They haven't realized that they must have somebody in charge of security, right. or everybody must be. But there must be time spent on security, no matter right. what you choose. The yeah. other thing is when you go for hacker part security from us or from one of the many other vendors there are, you are. Uh, you get a service from the outside where the skill represents something you could never hire into your own company. Even DOD cannot hire all the cybersecurity experts they would need to find every hole. But we have them. We have 600,000. So if you need somebody who knows Kubernetes, we got it. If you need somebody who knows Android, we got it. If you need somebody who knows SQL injections, we got them. Whatever you need. And and you need just a fraction of that person. So don't hire the person full-time. Instead, Use the right. same experts who are hacking on Goldman Sachs, IBM, Microsoft, Intel, Qualcomm, all these amazing companies. You get access to the same hackers. So right. it's I would say you do it because you get access to talent you could never uh, hire, you could never afford to hire, but but here you get exactly as much of them as you need. Whether it's so it's two- not just the it's not just the breadth of people, it's the breadth of talent and perspectives and approaches. The whole yeah. deal. Yeah. Right. that's why I, I said it's highly differentiated. That mm. our community, we have six hundred thousand hackers, but they are all different. So they represent their special special skills, and any given customer will need a sort of a different footprint from them. Right. And uh, and the cynic could the next question logical question would Don't be, be cynical. <laughs> <laughs> you see how convincing you are. <laughs> this is all we do. You don't need a sales department. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, so there are cynics. Yes, you're but right. If, but a cynics. cynic, I mean, a cynic could then say, um, "Well, hang on a second. If I let any of these folks into the tent, um, is that going to open me up for risk? What's your view there? Yeah. Or what's your argument there? Yeah." Uh, absolutely, you're up for risk, but you're already. Uh, all right. the, the bad criminals are already attacking you. They are not well-behaved like our hackers. They don't wait for an invitation. They're right. already there. So whatever we bring to you, it will be better than it was before. Mm. And mm. and then we also know that a criminal would never sign up with HackerOne because we they leave breadcrumbs with us. We see when they logged in from what IP addresses. We know who they are when we pay them. So if yeah. you if you are a criminal, you would never sign up with us. So we are really the the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts of the digital age. We are a big right. group. We we do a good deed every day. We help old ladies across the street or whatever we do. We help others do good, and in that community, that doing good. Uh, mentality spreading and becoming a social contract between the hackers mm. so they they together form the the moral codex for how to operate and they hold each other to a high standard and that's why it's just the the level is just going up and up both in skill right. and in conduct in that community i think i think this is a really important point because um you know a while back um 
for, for people listening to this. A while back, HackerOne was a client of mine, and I'd spent most of most of my career around um, open source developers. And there's there's a certain culture and a mindset within um, a lot of open source developers. And I discovered that there's a very much of an open, uh, a very much of a culture and a mindset in the hacking world too. And that was it was really interesting to peer into it. And one of the things that I noticed was. Um, the hackers in the HackerOne community are incredibly um, responsible, care deeply about their work, uh, care deeply about staying up to date and focus on new technologies and new approaches. And there's a lot of information sharing uh, there as well. But since you came into this world, what has been what have been the most interesting things that you've noticed about the hacker culture? Because I think a lot of people listening to this, unless you work in technology and work in security, you hear about hackers as being, you know, these people in Russia who are hacking our defense systems and our voting systems, and they seem to have this view of the the the, the stereotypical, um, you know, guy in the shadows with the hoodie on. But that's very different to the reality of the people in the HackerOne community. What, what? How would you summarize that culture? It's similar, Jono, to uh, in two thousand when I joined the open source world, and I I didn't come from open source, but I entered it then, and I expected to find a community. Right, and, and after a year, like this is not a community; it's communities, and it's right. many different. And there are different types, and there are those who, who behave in one way, and those who behave in a different way, and those who are always angry, and those who are always happy, and those who do this, and those who do that. And I realized that it subdivides into any number of of small groups or small interests, mm. and and it's the same with the the hacking community, that there's everything there. There are students, there are people who work in the security uh, uh, profession full-time and do this in the evenings. There are people who have, do nothing other than hacking. They are from all over the world. They are men, right. they are women, they are old, they are young, more young than old, but still there's a, a wide range. Yeah. And, and they have different career ambitions. Like some mm. of them would have a dream of becoming startup entrepreneurs. Some of them are becoming security engineers and then managers and directors and CISOs. Some of them are very independent. Uh, some of them are really struggling with communicating with people. So they can come across as impatient and rude and right. using foul language, which is true. But right. when you look through that, you see that all of this stems from a very high fidelity to doing good and improving the world. Yeah. And when they're impatient, it's because they don't see the world improving fast enough. Right. And that's also nothing unique to hackers, right? I mean, you get no. that elsewhere in the world. Uh, yeah. People can be yeah. brash uh, or inarticulate. Um, yeah, I, I, the impression I get as well is that a lot of people enter into this world somewhat accidentally. I remember when Hacker One ran a um, a hacking event in Las Vegas and there was a, an attendee there who inadvertently stumbled on I think it was a whole bunch of social security numbers or something like this on the on the Uber website when he was playing around with the Uber website and then realized he should probably let Uber know and he ended up be, becoming quite a prominent part of the HackerOne community but completely stumbled into this world didn't really come from a security background have you seen that too? Have you seen that people really come from just there's there's always been this um, a similarity between people who are software developers who also have to care about security, and then security engineers who also have to care about software engineering. Yeah, 
Is it is there kind of a mix and a match of that? There is, but they can come from from anywhere. I think you you remember Kevin, who was an Uber right. driver himself, right. and then he became a hacker instead because it was more exciting and, and paid <laughs> better. Uh, but but they they can come from anywhere. They have to have unlimited curiosity. And, and it sounds cool to say you have to have unlimited curiosity, but you have to think deeply what it means to have unlimited curiosity. It's a very, it's actually a very rare uh, characteristic of a human right. being, but they do have that. Like they don't give up and they they think outside the box all the time. Yeah. Uh, and then of course they need to have the technical knowledge of, of mathematics and computer science and how computers work. But you could yeah. learn that. But this The curiosity aspects may, I don't know where it comes from, but it is unique with, with our best hackers, like how they can just outsmart anything that is in front of them. Mm. And Yeah, uh, there's got to be an enormous amount of perseverance. Uh, yes, and, and then when they <laughs> yeah. find something, to them it's like winning an Olympic gold medal or right. or getting a, an Oscar. Like they, they can sort of, they start shaking and they may not be able to work for a day because it was such an enormous feeling when they got, they found the vulnerability, they knew they would get a big bounty and it just shakes their, their lives completely, like yeah. in a positive way, but it still shakes them. So, yeah. so people yeah. don't realize how intense it is and how delighted they are when they find them. You may think that the vulnerability in software is something negative. For the hackers, it's the most delightful thing ever. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that, that was, it's funny you say about the intensity, because that was one of the things that really struck me at the at that event in Las Vegas was, was the intensity in which they focused and in which they worked. Um, it was, I mean, you see intensity in other parts of the world. You see it with, with people who run businesses and engineering and elsewhere, but there was like a unique kind of intensity that was, that was there. Does that make um, building a community of people um, complex when you've got such uh, such intense personalities. <laughs> it does, but but it actually is easier to build a community when you have a diversity of personalities. Right, that right. actually becomes the diversity becomes the glue. Yeah, and and it's, yeah. It, the community is interesting for everybody exactly because there's so many. You you meet people of different type. Mm, mm. So so I, I actually think it has been reasonably straightforward to build a hacker one community because in order to be a, a good hacker you must have this curiosity and you must a little bit be uh, self motivated. Many are lone wolves, but they sort of they have this drive in themselves. So you yeah. don't have to tell them what to do. You don't have to babysit them much. You, you yeah. have to enable certain things, but but other than that, they. They have a lot of drive in them and they are eager to help and they love hanging out together and they love to show what they found and explain right. how they did it because then they get this professional recognition from others who are mm. as good as they are or better. Mm. And, and that gives them so much, so much satisfaction that it sort of builds the community on its own. Right. And uh, earlier on, you, you, you mentioned about... Um, you know about Kevin becoming a, a hacker um, instead of an Uber driver, and because it's a lot better paid. This right. is, I think, something else that's an interesting thread to this story is just how much money some of these hackers are making. When I talk to people about Hacker One, and they've never heard of Hacker One before, one of the things I often say is there are people who've made millions of dollars from hacking. So why don't you just unpack that a little bit about about how the payment structure works, and and you know how people are running very profitable businesses doing this 
Yes, uh, we've paid out over $90 million in hacker rewards over the past four or five years. So it's a lot of money. Wow. Uh, we have eight hackers who've made more than a million each. So just fantastic earnings. Incredible, yeah. What we have to know now, if you are now an aspiring hacker, we, you have to know that it's it's a meritocratic system and it is not unlike becoming a movie star in Hollywood or Bollywood or becoming an NBA player or NHL player, mm. meaning everybody can try, everybody can have the aspiration, everybody can go to the, the lower level schools and series, but to really make it all the way to the top takes a lot of work and perseverance mm. and and very few will actually become movie stars that, that yeah. win the Oscar. So so it's very motivational for everybody to join, but it also means that whatever the hacker community, the size of it is, it is actually a small portion that will reach those amazing uh, levels. Yeah. But here is the greatest thing. Those who get to the highest level uh, come from wherever. They, they have nothing in their background that would make them better or make them less good. Right. They, are, they are young. The first one to get to a million was 19 years old. Mm. And he lives in Buenos Aires in Argentina. So wow. then you see that it's truly open for anybody. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your age is, you can do it if you just go for it. So not everybody will get to the top, but those who get to the top have come from any walk of life. Right. Interesting, interesting, and it's interesting you you say about the comparison to the the MBA as well, because I imagine that with some of these hackers who are making a lot of money, especially if they the, and maybe um, um, you know relatively kind of keep to themselves, have just focused on what they what they care about and what they're passionate about, coming into that much money potentially relatively quickly could be. A dangerous thing. Is there an element of, okay, what do I do with this? Because you know, if you've got a talent and you're you're spending a whole bunch of your time um, um, finding and delivering vulnerabilities and getting paid for it, is there an element of um, being able to know how to manage that and how to manage your new lifestyle as it's as it's forming? Yeah, it, it certainly is a challenge, especially for young people when they right. make more money than they thought, and many of them will will spend their money on something that others don't find useful or wise. Right, right. But but then I, I have a sort of two-sided view on it. On the one hand, we are trying to help them and, and sort of give right. them framework to how to think about money management. But we also think that this is discretionary money. They are making money because they're good at hacking. They have something else typically that they do in life. So mm. they can... They can afford to do whatever they want with that money. And if they need more, they can keep hacking. So, right. Right. so I also think it's important that they get to feel this amazing feeling of at some point having more money than you need and spending it on something that you just love spending it on. And maybe it's right. not the, the best investment for your the rest of your life, but in the moment, it gives you so much joy to get yeah. that car exactly. or motorbike or or you travel somewhere, or you do something with yeah. your partner or your family. And yeah. they should do that, I think. Yeah. I mean, who 
Everyone needs a guitar-shaped swimming pool from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't we? <laughs> um, or, or many different guitars. Those who play them, they need right. money. <laughs> well, you cannot have just one guitar. That would be sacrilege. Um, so right. in the, you've been at HackerOne, obviously, for, um, well, five years now, right? And um, um, how have you seen the industry reacting? Because from the, from, the, from the sidelines, I think a lot of us are seeing... HackerOne going from strength to strength. There's a lot of growth. The brand is becoming increasingly well-recognized. There's a lot of respect towards HackerOne. But do you feel like the needle is turning more broadly in the industry towards hacker-powered security? Yes, I do think it is. And uh, I think it is inevitable at this point. I think it would happen with or without HackerOne. Like we're right. very proud to be the market leader by far. We are the strongest driver of this, but it would happen even without a company like HackerOne now because it's there are so many hackers who are doing it, so many companies who are betting on this and swearing by it and recommending it. Mm. We see the government recommending it and soon mandating it. So right. this, is, this is something that the world is ready for. And yeah. actually it will, in retrospect, be the opposite. People will say, how on earth did they think early on that they could build a digital society without having this external scrutiny called hackers? Mm. Yeah, no, I, like, I can. I, yeah, I completely. You, you do financial accounting today, and you have an auditor. And yeah. if you're a journalist, you have somebody who does fact checking and and proofing of your text. Whatever yeah. we produce well, as humans, mostly. Mostly, <laughs> yeah. the the high quality ones do. Right, uh, exactly. So, so whatever humans produce is bound to have flaws, and the only way to find it, it is to use other humans, because any machine will just look for the obvious flaws, but mm. we find the mm. non-obvious ones. There's got to be with all of this going on as well, because it would be remiss if I didn't ask you about, um, you know, the where where the. the Hacking comes up in in popular media and in mainstream media, of course, around, for example, Russian interference into um, our elections, into other elections, not just Russian interference, but state-sponsored hacking more broadly. What's your take on that? Do you feel like um, do you feel like it, it? It certainly seems, I think, for for a lot of us, that the incidence of um, black hat hacking is increasingly growing. It's increasingly state-sponsored. And where do you see hacker-powered security, such as HackerOne, feeding into that? Because it seems like as you scale out the white hat hackers and there's a, an ecosystem and an industry around that, that's got to be, a, I would have assumed, a great protective layer around some of this more negative activity that we're seeing in security. I'll address this from sort of a global perspective first, mm -hmm. like as if I weren't even HackerOne CEO. Right. I believe that nations will always interfere with each other, especially uh, nations that feel they are strong or should be strong or some have some have something some yeah. grievance with somebody. So they will they will mess with each other in, yeah. in bad yeah. ways. And if we then say see that they are now taking to digital means, uh, it's bad in the sense that everything is digital and you can you can disrupt very central functions of society it also has the benefit of taking that the interference away from some physical areas and if they're mm. putting their effort into the digital realm 
we actually can defend ourselves better, I think. It doesn't feel like that right now, but I think it will right. go there. Because then when you look at the just the sheer numbers, I've tried to estimate how many criminal hackers there are in the world. And then I add all the nation states, whoever works for a nation states, like in, in the country, they are not seen as criminal, but by other countries, they are seen as criminal. So take all right. of those together. It's less than 100,000 human beings, mm. maybe even just half of that. We have in our community alone, 600,000 people, and we're adding 300,000 a year. Right. So the, the ratio of good guys to bad ones is enormous. We have many, right. many more good guys. And right. we have the same skill level. It's not that the nation state hackers are, there are a few really brilliant ones, but many of them are regular uh, computer mm. science, mm. Uh, computer specialists. So we will absolutely be able to, to stop them when we realize that we must pool our defenses, we must share right. information, collaborate, we must ask hackers to help us. And there are many, many more white hats than black hats. So if right. we just ask them to help us, we would actually solve the problem. Ah, then it, it will take time to fix software. So even if we would know of every vulnerability today, it would take many, many years to, to get to fixing each one of them. So I'm right. not saying you could you could cure it overnight, but the resources are there. We are not... We are not in short supply of of the vaccine that we need here. Right, right. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I guess part of this is going to be integrating the vulnerabilities into the software development lifecycle of those organizations to a point where if a vulnerability is found, it can be fixed as quickly and as efficiently as possible um, and you know reviewed, obviously. Um, yeah, we, we should learn from aviation safety. Right. And from hospital hygiene, how they have methods to staying disciplined, whoever is doing something. They have mm. methods to, to doing root cause analysis. They look what look at what went wrong. They fix it. They have a no-blame attitude, so they're not looking for whom to blame. They're just looking for how to fix it. Right. And as a result, flying is very safe. Right, right. So I want to switch gears a little bit um, to your experiences in building companies. Um, because one of the reasons why I want to talk about this with you is because of all of the executives that I've met over the course of my career, you're one of the most transparent people that I've met. There are, there are a lot of people out there who talk you know, in management books about failure and the value of embracing failure and openness and transparency. But I feel like you've really lived this over the years, Martin, in, 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 in the approach that you've taken. With my failures, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I, I would say your successes, but you know, we, we're, we're never 100% batting record. But um, let's go back to when you um, when you started out in this um, because again i think for a lot of people the martin mikos story begins with the the awareness of you being at my how did you get into into uh, running businesses and how did you get to a point where you felt comfortable that what you were doing was getting the right kind of results because i know a lot of people who often get into leadership positions you know, there's kind of a, an unspoken rule that there's a lot of imposter syndrome, there's a lot of uncertainty, and you've got all that responsibility that's sitting on your shoulders. How, when, what was your story kind of beginning to get into that world and managing that? Uh, great question. It, it sort of happened by mistake, or it didn't happen by planning. It wasn't a mistake, but it also didn't happen by planning. And, and if you right. had asked me in the first five years 
of being an entrepreneur, if that's what I, I will be, I would have said, no, I'm just, mm. I'm just having fun building a startup here with a few, few friends. Right. But when I grow up, I'll be a boss of a big factory. Like that right. was probably what I thought back then. But, yeah. but then I realized later that I had already at the age of 24, 25, become an entrepreneur and, and I, it, it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't wash right. away. Did you grow up, by the way, with, well, like when I grew up in England, I don't think I ever heard the word entrepreneur until I was much older, whereas here in California, it's spoken of a lot to young people. What was that like in Finland? No, I had, I had no such background. Like right. I, I have entrepreneurs in the family, if you go a few generations back, but not, right. not in the, the, my immediate or sort of the ones who were alive and around me. So I, right. I, don't, I don't know where I got it, but, but I do have inside me and I've always had uh, a, a sort of a rebellious mind mm. and, and I can be nice and, 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 calm and cool and all of that and and I'm not violent or anything but right. but, I, but I do have a rebellious mind inside of me which which allows me to to make decisions that go against what or to do something that nobody else would do such as start a company right. and and every time I've been in a leadership position I I don't know where I have it but I have some sort of confidence in myself right and and, and maybe Maybe I got it from my mother. Maybe she instilled it in me, like this belief that okay, maybe maybe I'm not the best, but I'm darn good. And right. Take it or leave it, but I'm putting in my whole soul. I can't do anything better, so it must be pretty good. And yeah, and I've I've lived off that belief uh, in the moments when I had no rational reason to believe I could do anything. It's it's so interesting you say that because. Um... Uh, Erica, my wife, as you know, is the uh, COO at GitHub and ran a, a startup before GitHub. And we were talking the other night within the current light of coronavirus, and we were just um, talking about how it took us both a while to get to the realization that there's kind of an entrepreneurial spirit that will get people through um, tough times. We were basically saying, you know, if for some reason um, Erica left GitHub, my business dried up, whatever it might be, there'll be a path forward because there's kind of a, there's that drive, there's that um, kind of cultural piece to it. And it sounds like that's what you're saying is that there was a belief there. It's not an arrogance. It's just a confidence that in your capabilities to push forward and to get results. Is that kind of what you're Yes, yeah. but, but the story isn't complete until I admit that this film has broken a few times. <laughs> so I've had moments when I did give up and I, I thought my life was over and, and oh, I really? didn't amount to anything. And then there was somebody else who took those two strands and, and glued them together again and, and told me to stop that self-pity and get myself back up and, and keep right. going. And, and so the first, the, the first time that, that happened, was it, it did was it somebody else that man? It, it was somebody else who managed to kind of get you out of that funk. Was it? Is that how it was? Well, maybe it, that was sort of a, a, a crowdsourced effort. Uh, there was a, <laughs> the, in the dot com uh, bust. 
the company. Well, the company later went bankrupt, but I had been fired from my CEO job or I resigned. I don't even know what happened. Right. The, bo- the board meeting ended with me not being the CEO. <laughs> not a great ending. <laughs> not a great ending. Oct- October 17, 2000. And right. then I was going to this conference in Europe the week after. I'd already booked it. So I went there and I didn't go to any presentations. I sat in the bar drinking every day. That's what it feels like. I, I don't think I did it, but it feels like it. And, right. But all these other CEOs who were there, they came to me and said, Martin, you will get through this. Don't cry or cry all you like, but you'll get through this. It's mm. not so bad. Here's my story. And sort of now I'm drama. This is sort of not the truth. This is how I would dramatize it. But everybody right. stopped there and told their story, walked away and bought me a drink. And then I <laughs> sat there for hours and hours. And at the end, I was like, hey, if they have gone through bad times, then heck, I can do that too. And, right. then, and then when I returned home after that, the five days or three days, I was like, okay. And then I, and then I got this rebellious mind thinking, best revenge to all mm. those who didn't believe in me is to show what I can do. Right. And when you went through that tough time um, and when you've had similarly tough times, um, one thing I'd like to ask you is I had um, someone on this podcast called Liz McCabe and she's an executive coach and she's she's a really wise uh, person. And one of the things that Liz was talking about was the the challenge between the role of ego in failure and the role of responsibility. Like I, you know, it's hard because you've got the responsibility of your employees, of your company, but then there's also the, I don't want to look like a failure. I don't want to appear like I've not done well. How would you characterize what your mind was going through at that time? Because I think that's obviously a really formative moment in your career. And people who are listening to this either have been through that or about, or will go through that at some point. Yeah. I think I that's where I am rebellious. Like mm. I, I become North Korea at, <laughs> at that point. Okay, you're gonna have to explain that one. Like I say, okay, I don't have a I don't have a nuclear bomb, but I'll pretend I have one. <laughs> right, I see. And like that moment when I was fired or I resigned, I don't know which happened, but but I sort of confronted them back when they're pushing on me. Right. I said, "Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be the CEO for this crappy company with these crappy board members." So right. I sort of. I, I became very feisty, mm, mm. and 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 then I allow it to, then sort of it it completely broke down, and I wasn't the CEO any longer. Right. But but I had a little bit of of pride restored or maintained in me in, in saying I wasn't just dismissed, and I didn't sort of mm. walk out crying. I walked out uh, angry or sort of with my with my head high, um, and yeah. And it somehow, it might might not have been the most diplomatic way of handling it there, but but right. it it did give me the sort of the mental fortitude to say, okay, it, it was the right thing to happen, and it doesn't right. mat- matter how we arrived at the decision because it was the right decision from for yeah. everybody. And then I did work with them afterwards, so it, it wasn't any bridges burnt or anything. Right, I, it was just I, that I, point in history. Right. Yeah. So, uh, um, do you think that um, do you think that for people to be really good at what they do, do you think they need those experiences? Do you think they need to experience that sense of uh, of despair so they can see that they can break through it? It's sort of a, a needless question because there's no uh, success is such a long journey that mm. just by statistical uh, 
probability, you must go through to yeah, failures. It's going to happen. At some whether, point. whether you need them or not, I don't know. It's great for those. There are some entrepreneurs who never went there and they still are successful. So I don't think you right. essentially need them. I just think that there's so much, there's so many places that can go wrong that statistically some will. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess it challenges your evaluation of the moment and then you can kind of uh, see what your next steps are. So yeah. let's um, spin forward a little bit to um, to when you joined, well, a lot, in fact, to when you when you joined HackerOne um, as CEO. What was, what? how would you summarize to people listening to this what it's like to come into somebody else's business as, as a CEO? Because I can imagine... A lot of people want to have that experience because they are, um, they're, you know, they're starting their own business and they're 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 part of their own business, but coming into an existing machine that's going to have, you know, a, a, a set of politics and challenges and other bits and pieces there. How have, how have you approached that and handled that? Um, I think I followed whether I knew it at the time or not, but I think I've followed some some principles. Now I can explain it. Back then I couldn't have said it in this eloquent way, but I think you have to come into it with the mindset of a midwife, that mm. that you come into the situation where you didn't, you didn't make the baby, it's not your baby, but the baby will not get properly born uh, or unless you do your job. Right. Like that you are an essential part of it although it's it wasn't you who started the whole thing you're you're truly a midwife and right. so you go in with that sense that it's somebody else's creation and you you owe it to them to do your best but part of your owing it to them is also you owe it to them to to take away from them things that they they can't handle or that they shouldn't be handling anymore. So so it's not just to please them. It is really to serve them long term. And therefore, and that gives you the strength to disagree with founders or whoever the early decision makers are. And and I think when you do that, you you have you have a sort of a foundation, a moral foundation to stand on that will guide you in decision making. So, right. So, so that's one. The the other one is that when you get now, I've become sort of a serial hired gun. Like I'm a professional CEO, and this is the third time I'm hired into a company uh, as the the professional CEO. And and those companies, of course, will do everything to attract you to such a company. They'll try to sell you on the idea. And I've decided that I need to do the the I need to reciprocate to them and also try to sell me, meaning even if they are trying to get me to join a company like with HackerOne, they tried to get me to join. At one point, I turned around and said, I will apply for this job. I will, <laughs> I will sort of, I will pretend that I'm competing against a million other much better candidates and I'll try to show that I am the right one. And and when I did that, it allowed me to get into the right mindset that it's not like like I'm coming in on some sort of mandate that's already given. I have to earn earn the the role and mandate, and I have to apply for the job. I have to do research. I have to write down my thinking, and I have to talk to all the founders. and And it sort of I think it set me up for for coming in 
at the same time, more confident and more humble than otherwise. Right, right. And when, when, you've, when you've come into a business like that, um, I imagine that one of the challenges here is you, you want to kind of come in and understand the culture and understand the personalities. But as a CEO, you're going to have to start making some decisions and you're going to want to make sure that those decisions are obviously the right kind of decisions for where you are at that time. But you don't want to be seemingly coming in and, and unnecessarily wielding power. You want to be respectful to what's already there, but also make the right kind of changes. How have you approached that? Because that's got to be a really delicate balance, right? Yeah, we say it is a delicate balance. It really isn't. We, we should just make the changes. But I, I, it's difficult and I'm not always good at it. But but I reflect back. I talk to other CEOs. We have these small groups and we talk confidentially about our leadership challenges. Every time when I bring it, bring up something like this with other CEOs, they look at me and say, Martin, why were you hired to that company? And I'm right. like, well, because I'm so good. I said, no, no, that's not why they hired you. I said, why did they hire me? And then my friends say, they hired you for a reason. They need change to happen in the company. That's what they hired you for. Not because you are a wonderful person. They hired you because they are looking for a change. And you have to play your role in that change. And when you think like that, you realize, oh, that's true. I'm here to make that change happen. And the fact that they haven't made the decision just means it's even more on me to make it because they have been unable to make it. And mm. again, there you you can draw the the confidence and power to make decisions. Um, and and of, as a CEO, you are always all in. Like there's no you you can be fired at any moment, or you can or you're not. But there's sort of it's your whole career, every every little decision you make, you are betting your whole self into it. And when you get used to that, then you're like, okay, I'll make small decisions about what kind of coffee maker we need and I'll make big decisions with the same same confidence because I'm I'm in right. this all in. It's me. I can fail, I can succeed, but I must not stop driving for the change that they hired me for. Mm, mm, I see. And when you, when you, I mean, again, this can be your previous businesses, but when you come into a company such as HackerOne, I assume that you've got, you've got a, a, an approach that you're going to take towards culture, towards um, building out the values of the business and how you're going to grow the teams and the, the leadership styles that you want to have in your, in your direct reports and, and all the rest of it. How, what, what would you say to people who are building businesses? Um, how what is your recommendations for how someone builds a healthy culture inside of a business? There are so many different cultures and so many different cultures who will function well that there there may not be a universal right. uh, answer to this question. But but I do think when you join a company, you have to declare to them what you believe in. And and when I joined HackerOne, I asked everybody I, I spoke to, I said, what's the culture like in the company? And every single one said, oh, it's very open. And first I was like, okay, shall I believe that? Or is that just sort of some jargon that they've agreed mm. on? But then everybody said it spontaneously. I believed, okay, that's true. And I, then I told them that if you hire me, I will represent the following values. And if you don't like those values, don't hire me because I, I'm not capable or willing to change them. So they, right. they sort of knew what they were getting. 
And then we started for, forming the values. And we have, even at HackerOne in these four years, we have changed the, the values somewhat. Uh, transparency is there front and center. Others that were there are now expressed. And then there was some values that really weren't there at the time, um, but, but we added them. And, right. and I, I would mention, we have a value where we say win as a team. And many times when founders start companies, they try to be best. And then when they hire somebody like me, this person, the CEO, will come in and say, how about also winning? And then people, right. isn't that the same thing, best <laughs> and winning? And right. no, it's not exactly the same thing. <laughs> you, it's not enough to be best. We also have to win. And in the moments, which always will happen, that we are not fully the best at the time, we sh- still need to make sure that we are winning. Mm. And, mm. and with hiring head of sales, head of marketing and others, we got that thinking into the culture and it became part of our stated culture in the company. And I would say it wasn't there before, but now it's there and you can't, I don't think you can see where it originated from, but but that it's an example of how uh, executives who were hired into the company brought something with them that that is useful and has been added to the the set of values and is working very well in the company. Right, and, right. And now when we ask people which of our five values they sort of feel closest to or like the most, many people say win as a team. Mm-hmm. And just as we kind of bring this into a close, um, when you look over the course of your career, uh, and again, like Im- imagine people who are listening to this are um, entrepreneurs maybe in the early stages of their career, and they're thinking, I'd like to do what Martin Mikos is doing. I'd like to have a career path that looks like that. What would be you? What would you say are the the main things that you've discovered? The most the things that jump to mind um, over the course of your career that that you would teach to your younger self. <laughs> you know, moving forward. <laughs> I don't believe in that question. I think <laughs> I think when we are young, we are not teachable. Really? Like, no, I don't think we listen well to advice and. And if somebody's looking to me, I hope they are not saying I would like to do what Martin did. I hope they say, I'm smarter than that guy. Right. Or I work harder than him. Or if that douchebag could do that, I can do <laughs> twice as much. <laughs> if they have that mindset, then I, I think they will do well. But but you have to you have to have that when you're young. You have to somehow hmm. If you're trying to listen to, there's time to listen to the wise guys when you get into trouble. But before that, when in youthful exuberance, just go for it and make your mistakes on your own, and then realize that you should have listened to advice when you were young. But but that is exactly how it should play out. Right. Right. If you actually listen to advice when you're young, then then you may be missing out on a path that you have to explore, which is right which is believing too much in yourself or ignoring the warning signals or right. having an inflated ego. Like, right. like how, do you, how do you achieve wisdom? It is by observing yourself when you are not practicing wisdom. Mm, mm. Uh, well, that in itself, I think, is great advice. <laughs> <laughs> that is. That is. If but... you are young and listening to this, ignore that advice. Uh... <laughs> Something like that. Don't even listen to this podcast. Just <laughs> right. build your business. <laughs> Just get on with it. Uh, yeah. Well, Martin, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. I think you, you do such phenomenal work. And again, it's not just the output, but it's the tenor and it's the approach. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, John. This was fun.